Guys, this is hard to do. Oh, I agree. I normally look forward to seeing you guys, but I've been dreading this. Let's just give it a go. Jump in and see what happens. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Non-commissioned officer reporting for duty. And one of the people in A Few Good Men, Joshua Molina. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) We come to you today with hearts that are still heavy, and we know they will be for some time. Last week, when this terrible situation in Israel was still quite new, we brought you two special episodes, and we spent a lot of time trying to decide the best path forward for this week. One thing that became clear is that we want an Orthodox to be a place where you can turn to for community, for a little understanding, and hopefully a little bit of joy as well. So today we're bringing you all of those things. You know, this reminds me of, uh, remember the first SNL show after 9-11, where they brought in, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who back then was still a person that people looked at with anything but kind of disgust. And Lauren Michaels asked, can we be funny? And Rudy Giuliani said, why start now? (laughs) So I feel the same way. Yes, why be poignant? Why be moving? But why be anything? Why start now? But, you know, we... We're having a lot of these conversations behind the scenes, in our homes, in our WhatsApps, in our texts. And we think you probably are having the same conversation. So we wanted to bring on someone who could help us sort through all of our feelings here and and root them in in Jewish practice and Jewish law and Jewish beliefs. So we're bringing on Rabbi Ari Lamb to talk to us a little bit about what Judaism has to say about the ethics of this crisis, about hostages, about humanitarian impacts of war, about all of the things that we know are on our minds and your minds. We also have an interview with the actress Lisa Edelstein, who I'm sure you've seen on one of the many shows she's been part of. She has a new project. It's a series with PBS called Little Bird, and it talks a little bit about Jewish history, about indigenous history in Canada, and a lot more. So we'll be bringing you that conversation as well. Before we get to all that, um, hello, guys. How was your week, Stephanie? Yeah. And other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? (laughs) There seems to be no right answer, but... I don't know what else to ask. How are you guys? It is hard to answer. Uh, Bad. I mean, bad, hurting, uh, horrified, concerned. I mean, I'm worried about the future, what the near end, long-term future holds. You're right. It is. It's a tough question. But I've uh, I've been heartened by the number of people who have called me to ask the question and have reached out to say, yeah, how are you doing? Even though I don't have a great answer. It's nice to be asked. Me too. You know, there's so many amazing calls. The the most kind of astonishing of all of them, I think, is the um, the guy at the wine store down the block texted me, mm. um, <laughs> and I was so supremely touched. And then I <laughs> spent a moment and thought, he's either the nicest man in the world, or without me, this entire liquor store collapses. <laughs> this person's probably very, very upset. It's like, listen, something bad happened in 83% of our business. Depends on this guy. No, but honestly, this 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 really this week made me think. Though I say a great week for drinking. A very strong week for, for numbing the pain with gin. Uh, but look, it's a terrible week and we do what Jews always do in terrible weeks, which is tell jokes to overcome. And this kind of like how you're doing business, which I appreciate so dearly, really reminded me of the joke that Jerry Seinfeld said is his absolute favorite Jewish joke. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, here's here's Jerry Seinfeld's favorite Jewish joke. Two non-Jewish businessmen get together and the first one asks, hey, how's business? And the other one says, great. (laughs) It's a good joke. 
It's just fantastic. It's a very good joke. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, though, how, uh, how have you been? Something that we can do with these microphones that we have is, I think, try to help the people who listen process things, right? Try to sort of be open and honest and upfront about the things that we're going through because I think it's pretty similar, right? We're, we're not so special, right? Nothing, nothing about our lives is, is so different from anyone else's. And look, and if I, if I may be candid, for me as a, an American Jew, right, we all faced something really scary this past Friday, which was like a supposed Hamas global day of jihad. And everyone was texting, do we send our kids to school? Do we go to work? What do we do? Like this, this fear, this terrifying thought that all of a sudden, all of us in America, like we also were under attack after having spent a whole week just feeling sickened and devastated by what was happening in Israel. All of a sudden it was like, Jewish institutions are going to be targeted. And it's hard because you don't want to give in to what feels like fear-mongering and hysteria. But at the same time, you want to be smart. And so, you know, my daughter goes to a Jewish preschool, an unnamed Jewish preschool. I was genuinely torn about what to do because theoretically, I believe that the response to this is to show up in Jewish spaces and to be vocal and loud and proud. Um, I actually bought one of those mazel rings from Rachie Schnee, who's been on the show before, a big ass Star of David that I wear on my middle finger. Read into that what you want. <laughs> but then I was like, this is my kid. This is my two-year-old, right? Like, is it worth it to send them into this place? And then I had a very helpful exchange with someone and they said, whatever decision you make is the right one, but just remember the fear you felt in this moment. And I was like, yes. The fact that I am so scared as an American Jew to send my child to a Jewish institution is so dispiriting and so devastating. And and I've never felt anything like it. And so we decided to send her. And on the walk to school, we saw another family, a guy in a yarmulke, pushing two religious kids in a stroller to their school. It was just really moving, right? Because I was like, here's an even more visibly Jewish person than I am. Here they are going to school. And I think here we all are. And when we got into the school, there were not as many strollers as usual. There were not as many kids as usual. But there was the Shabbat sing-along like there always is. And there was just all the families sitting there, hugging their kids, singing the Shabbat songs. It was so beautiful. And I was so moved. And I literally just started crying. Like, you know, it was like the most amazing beautiful moment of community. The kids didn't know, right? There's preschool. They're not really necessarily asking questions or being of an age where you need to talk to them about this, which is obviously something a lot of parents are facing. But I just was bowled over. The director of the institution was standing outside the building welcoming us all. Like it was a real show of community and at the at like the very youngest level, right? Like this was just honestly just the most magnificent thing I had I had seen. And at the end of a very long week, I just found it to be cathartic but also devastating in its own way, right? That it it felt so good in that room. But I was also aware of like all the security outside, all of the things that all Jewish institutions this weekend, all the precautions they had to take and will likely not unimplement, right? Because who knows when something could happen? There's no reason to, you know, this, this idea of like synagogues as fortresses. I think we're only just going to see it more and more as these threats. Luckily this week, nothing materialized, right? But who knows? We have to sort of be vigilant and I think this is a question that Jewish parents are going to be grappling with for a long time. And in a way that we've never had to, we've been very lucky. Sometimes it's all in, in our fear and in times of danger, we're at our strongest and most united as a people. And I hope that's something we can carry over into God willing better times and stay 
united. A, a big part of Moses's farewell speech, which we uh, just finished reading, the book of Devarim, he basically says, guys, um, here's the thing about Jews. You guys, really great at times of trouble. When things are good, yeah, not, not, not so hot. Uh, look, Stephanie, I, I, I totally hear you. I send my kids to, uh, to a Jewish day school. There was a major Palestinian pro-Hamas rally across the street, planned specifically across the street from a Jewish day school. There were a lot of parents who had the same consideration. And I, I don't want to um, belittle anyone's sense of, of fear, especially people who have never felt it before, who have never, for example, gone on a bus in their lives and very carefully selected the specific seat they're going to take because a suicide bomber is very likely to sit in this particular part of the bus because that's where the majority of damage will be caused, which is the kind of logic that every Israeli who grew up in the 90s has, you know, has down pat. Uh, but I will say this, and I, I am aware of how kind of stentorian and bullish I sound, but I stand behind it 100%. There are no two right choices in this case. There is only one. And the one is you go on and you double down on Jewish life because this is how terrorism works. Terrorism works not just by claiming the lives of the innocent civilians that it targets, but by sending everyone else into a paroxysm of fear and paralysis. And once you succumb to it, and as a great book once said, fear is the mind killer. Once you succumb to it, you lose. And here's the thing about losing. It's addictive. You go on and on and on, retreating further and further and further into dark recesses. And then you've basically seeded this entire game. There's only one solution here. Uh, and the solution here is to triple down on Jewish life, to triple down on Jewish pride. Sure, you should take precautions. Sure, you should be smart. Sure, you should kind of look around you and make all kinds of calculations and arrangements that you need, but to stay home or to alter your reality or to do less Jewish things because you're afraid to be together with other Jews, uh, good luck with that, buddy. You could look at Jewish history and see how well that has played, which which brings me to kind of the, the bigger point I, I wanted to make. Um, this has been a week in which we've sadly heard a lot of terrible things and a lot of terrible stories, but, but one of the most disconcerting uh, to me was how many people basically just came up and be like, oh my God, is this what you've been talking about for years now? And I was like, yeah. And do you think I really want a reality in which this grim prognostication of, guys, there are a lot of people out there who truly hate us. Uh, do you think I want that to be true? Or would I rather just be like a foolish bearded maniac shouting at the clouds? But the thing that I, that I think is really hard to grapple with is there are so many amazing wonderful, warm, you know, Jews out there who truly graduated from their great institutions of higher learning and, and wanted the world to be this place which is good at heart, in which we're all equal and all moved by the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and all kind of just want to get together if we can negotiate some equitable understanding of material conditions of, of life. And all of a sudden, these people are confronted not just with, with a death cult, hell-bent on the murder of Jews, without any you know, consideration or connection or correlation to any real-life materials whatsoever, uh, but also to a lot of people who are cheering on this because it's actually never really been about all these you know, lofty, haughty principles of equality, equity, diversity that are being floated around. And it is so heartbreaking. And I think that, 
you know, you could you could you could live in this moment and see it as a great moment of despair uh, and a great moment of look how many people, look how many celebrities, look how many institutions of higher learning are abandoning us. Look at the pro Hamas demonstrations at Columbia University. Look at Black Lives Matter propagating these pictures of of the little you know Palestinian paratrooper about to kind of murder Israelis. You, you could you could focus on all that, or you could focus on the number of people who reached out to you this week and said, hey. Are you okay? You could focus on the number of WhatsApp groups that you've been on that said, guys, we're getting together and we're packing, you know, band-aids and first aid kits and we're sending them to Israel. You could focus on the number of, you know, Shabbat dinners that you were invited to. That kind of strength, that kind of resilience, this is not just kind of, you know, a silver lining on the dark cloud. It's not just like trying to make ourselves feel good. It's the actual essence of the real foundational difference between us and them. And I'm sorry, there isn't us and there is a them. There are those who celebrate death and destruction and there are those who celebrate life. And this transcends political camps and this transcends religious affiliations and this transcends, you know, ideological party lines across the board. And to be together with so many people this week who just stood up and said, you know what? We're in this together. Man, oh man, I am heartbroken. I am angry, but more than anything else, I think we're going to be okay. Can I just make sure that when you say there's an us and there's a them, that the, the them, them is you're Hamas. talking about is Hamas. Yeah. Them is there's Hamas. also an us and a them. Them, a, a us them is being, not the Palestinian people. Yeah, I just want to, I, I know that's how you feel, but I just want to make yes. sure that that's what yes, we're saying. Them, us and them is, you know, us is everyone. My Saudi friends, my Palestinian friends, my Israeli Arab friends, one of my good Israeli Arab friends sadly, tragically lost a cousin, uh, a young ambulance driver who was at the music festival. That dude was in an ambulance right on the outskirts. He's an Israeli Arab. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to just press the gas and sure. like vamoose out of there. Awad paid with his life to save fellow human beings, fellow Israelis. You know, we published on our uh, Testimonies archives a story of, of, of Yusuf, uh, an elderly Bedouin cab driver, dude is driving around in the morning. I was supposed to pick some people up at the festival. He enters into the festival and sees, you know, bloodied kids running around, understands what is happening and spends the next, I think, like 48 minutes under heavy fire. He rescued the lives of 30 people. Uh, that's us. You know, that Palestinian friends who send me a note being like, hey man, we're so sorry, this is despicable. That's us. My friend in Saudi Arabia who said, this is completely unconscionable. That's us. Hamas, that's them. The people in London shouting, you know, death to the Jews. The people in New York City holding up a swastika. The, you know, so-called Columbia professors who wrote, you know, pans in the electronic intifada saying, what a glorious day for Palestinian resistance. What a day to be jubilant. That's them. Uh, it's really as simple as that. And, and look, this is one of the most incredibly difficult moments, right? Because you go to you, you go to school, you go to grad school, you're a smart person, you read. The, the, the natural response is to say, it's really intricate. It's very complicated because there's the occupation and there's Israeli politics and there's Palestinian politics and there's 70 years of history. And, like, and it comes down to this one terrible day and it actually turns out to be very, very simple. You're either cheering on the killing of kids or you're not. And if you are not, uh, you're a decent human being. And we could all sit together and talk and have whatever kind of agreement or disagreement. If you're cheering on the mur murder of babies, you've tr 
pasts from you know the the brotherhood of man from from the family of the nations into something monstrous and there is no talking with you there should be no engaging with you there should be fighting with you but again i say the camp of us is huge and it contains so many people from such diverse backgrounds uh, which which gives me real hope because I really, I, I hear, and even in our camp, look, I hear so few people who are calling out for indistinct warlike carnage. When the Hamas terrorists who were captured were brought into Israeli hospitals, which is an incredible story. I don't think a lot of people here heard. Some were captured alive. They were taken to civilian Israeli hospitals. The Israeli population, again, still reeling the most horrendous attack, None said, we need to execute these people. Uh, some said, I don't think it's right for them to be in a civilian institution. Please take them to a military and or police hospital, which indeed turned out to happen. But it gives me great pride that, that this is the ethos. And I sure hope it continues this way because it must. I agree with you that the voices among our own community that are calling for, say, flattening a Gaza into a parking lot are few, but they do exist. And I shudder when I see them. I, I, I don't, that's not us to me either. So I want to, we've got some people that used to be us, I think that I now see as them. And I shuddered when I heard the president of Israel, Herzog, suggesting that it's an entire nation responsible for Hamas. I feel like that's just something I have to say as a Jew. That doesn't sit well with me. Uh, and that's a very prominent voice from a supposed moderate who essentially laid collective responsibility on two million people. Look, I hear you. Uh, I, I'll be extremely honest because uh, this, this is a difficult week. And if we're not candid now, uh, then when? If not us, then who? Um, not now when? If not here, then why? Um <laughs> I'll say this. Uh, it, this is a very, very difficult thing for me to grapple with. I know what you say to be true. I want to believe that in my heart I will sustain this belief. I want, I want, to, I want to raise two points, uh, and they're both completely tangential. The first is I was walking to Shul on this, this past Friday and ran into a, a young you know, friend of mine, and he just looked at me with, with this like, look of utter pain and said, I just want to know one thing. Like, where, where is Gaza's Schindler? I uh, said, so like, the Nazis were a much more magnificent machine of oppression and mur murder. And yet, 70 odd years later, we still hear stories about so many people who risked everything to stand up for humanity. And the second thing that, that I keep thinking about, which, which, is, which is heartbreaking to me, there was a video. And of all the videos that I've seen this week, and sadly, since, you know, a lot of what we were dealing with here is testimonies, I, I have seen all the videos, all the videos that I recommend, in fact, demand that you, none of you listening to us right now click on, because again, that's how terrorism wins. There's a video of a young Israeli boy who I think was around eight or nine, probably the, the, the age of, of my son. Um, and he was kidnapped into Gaza and they were putting him in a circle. Uh, he was surrounded by Palestinian children, uh, not a few of them, but many of them, who were hitting him and, and mocking him and mocking the way he was crying out for his mother. He was holding his hands over his head in a way that was very reminiscent of that famous, you know, child at the, I believe, Lodge Ghetto photo. That's the iconic photo of the Holocaust. But that's not what, you know, kind of really tore me apart. It was the Palestinian children. It was the notion that there is an entire generation 
reared on hate. Uh, I don't think it's their fault. Uh, I, I don't think that they're, you know, culpable in any way. They're, they're kids who are brainwashed uh, for hatred. But it reminded me that the operation ahead of us is not really just a military one, uh, because you obviously cannot flatten Gaza, nor should you want to do that. You're executing a very complicated war against a very well-funded terrorist organization. But after you're done and after you win it, and God, I believe you will win it, you'll face this larger question of what to do with this generation of children. And it's not an easy or simple question. But look, a lot of this conversation, I'm very proud to say, since it is very first and foremost in our mind, will be had in just a few minutes on the show because we're bringing in Dr. Rabbi Ari Lamb to talk specifically about this and to talk about this, not not from, you know, like this kind of wishy-washy, like, well, of course, you should be nice to civilians, but from an actual halachic perspective, because we do have several thousand years of tradition that actually tells us precisely what we believe we ought to do and not to do. So stay tuned. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. And now let's go to News of the Jews. We tried to find a few nuggets that were just a little bit uplifting. Um, Here's the first one. It is the video that's gone viral of Dr. Drew Weissman finding out that he had won the 2023 Nobel Prize in Medicine. There's video of his conversation with his parents. And to be a Jewish doctor and win the Nobel Prize and get to call your parents is, I feel like, the number one Jewish achievement in the entire universe. It is unlocking some next level shit here. Here's the response from his parents, Hal and Adele. Uh, I, I have some news. Shoot. You're both on? Is it, Hal? Yeah. I, I, I won the Nobel Prize. My favorite part is that she said fabulous. You know, the Nobel Prize really is fabulous. My favorite part of this entire story. So apparently, Dr. Weissman, Nobel Prize laureate Weissman, told the story that his parents, the lovely Hal and Adele, also very strong name game on these parents, visited Stockholm when Dr. Weissman was five years old. They went into the auditorium where the prize (laughs) is given. They went to the front row and said, save these two seats for us. It's just amazing. My parents did that with the Television Academy, but I've I've not blessed them with an Emmy win <laughs> or nomination. We're we're working on this. There should be like an EGOT with a Nobel on it. Yeah, that's right. I hope he gives it to them so they can put it on their mantelpiece. I love when she's like, and and so young and so young. Like it happens. Like she knew it was going to happen. It was just amazing that it had happened at such a young age. By the way, I'm sorry. Do we know if there are any other Weissmans? Like, does he have siblings? They they are not mentioned in this news article, and they may as well not exist. Can you imagine, like, Passover at the Weissman family? So, <laughs> Jenna, how was your year? <laughs> oh, you're a teacher of the year to your middle school? That's lovely, dear. It's a great story. So, Mazel Tov, Dr. Drew Weissman. Um, we'll, we'll go to Israel for some unexpected headlines. Bruno Mars was performing in Israel when the attacks, when the Hamas attacks happened. 
and he fled so fast that they left his band's gear behind um, and then had to cancel a series of concerts, which led to the amazing punchline on Twitter that Bruno Mars will not, in fact, catch a grenade for you. <laughs> wow. I did see video of him singing in Hebrew, so had to for yes. that. Yes. That, that was in the before times. Yeah. By the way, it's funny because when this first happened, the news headlines were were kind of murky. And when I first read it, because I read everything in like, you know, a blur last week, it kind of seemed like his equipment was captured by Hamas. I was like, wait, Hamas targeted Bruno Mars? Because that's some next level tactics. But it's funny because the day before the attacks, he had done his first concert and there was like all the, you know, the, the typical Jewish press headlines of like, Bruno Mars sings in Hebrew like he was being celebrated. Before the headlines turned to Bruno Mars beats it out of town. Right. Yes, exactly. But um, Bruno Mars, we we are glad you're safe. How about this one from the New York Post? Mystery man buys 250 plane tickets for Israel-bound IDF reservist at JFK Airport. I do think JFK Airport, there's been a few stories about it. The El Al terminal there is one of the most amazing spots right now because a lot of reservists who are in the United States are being called up. And what they're walking into at JFK is like, it's just like hordes of people with signs, with gifts, with supplies, and just welcoming them, sending them off with just like such amazing Jewish rock. I have so much to say about this. First of all, it's an amazing story. It's it's a Haredi man. And by the way, just as an aside, the organization in the Haredi community is unbelievable. It includes thousands of people in Israel who are saying, you know what? We want to serve in the army. We're here to fight, which you have never, ever, 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 ever seen before. And it's amazing. So this dude shows up at the airport like a boss, holds up like an Amex Gold and says, this card has a limit of half a million dollar on it. Anyone who shows me their Tzav Shmona, their official note from the army that you're going to fight in this war, gets a free seat, which is a super James Bond way to do it. But then I started thinking of all the implications of this flight. First of all, you know how I'll, I'll always ask you like, uh, did you pick the bags alone? Where were the bags since you packed them? Like, all everyone in this city has been doing all week is like packing bags to send to Israel. <laughs> I imagine there's some poor schlub at the airport. Like, did you pack the bag alone? It's like, uh, nope, they were packed by several thousand strangers. I don't know. And then I'm also imagining like that point of like people sitting in an emergency exit, you know, like the question that you have to ask, are you willing to assist in case like strikes me with a plane <laughs> full of soldiers about to go to war? <laughs> That's kind of redundant. It's like, is there a doctor? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Are you willing to assist? Yes. No, we're here to assist. Just get the plane to Israel. All right. Those are your feel-good headlines of the week. We'll continue searching frantically for some good news to share amidst all this darkness. Yeah. If you've got some, share it with us. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. 
The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Rabbi, Dr. Ari Lam is a good friend of the show and of mine and of all of us. Uh, He's the host of the amazing podcast, Good Faith Effort, which you absolutely have to check out. And, you know, he and I had the great fortune of being stuck in a car together for seven hours last week. And obviously, this is all we talked about. So we asked Ari to join us here and talk about what Judaism has to say about maintaining our humanity in times of war and how to fight very, very difficult wars and still stay true to the ethical edicts of our religion. Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a heck of a week. The war in Israel is escalating. And I think many of us, on the one hand, absolutely support Israel, want to see it achieve all of its military aims, want to see it win this war, want to see it destroy Hamas. On the other hand, have some real concerns about what happens when you wage war against a terrorist organization nestled in the middle of a civilian population. There are so many ethical considerations. And Rather than just be, you know, armchair pundits, we know that our tradition, the Jewish tradition, has a lot to say about what we must do, what we absolutely can't do, what we may do. Give us a kind of a halachic primer to ethical conduct in time of war. Only that. Sure. So the Jewish conception of what war is, as in the Jewish conception of anything, is formed by the stories and the regulations of the Hebrew Bible. And so the Ur text for a lot of this discussion is in the book of Numbers. The book describes a war that God commands the Jewish people to launch against the nation of Midian that had attempted to destroy the Jewish people through a variety of means. It's during that conflict that the Bible is both cryptic and explicit in some other ways about the various things that Jewish armies need to do. And there's a real sense that a Jewish army is actually not just another army, and it actually is bound by particular ethical codes. Sometimes what that means is that the Jewish view of war can sometimes be uniquely strict and even uniquely severe. There are times, for example, in the Bible where the Jewish people are commanded to wipe out entire populations. The Amalekites really are the, are the prime example of that. And yet, at the other end of the spectrum, you have times where it becomes clear that the Jewish ethic of war is one of, of like deep restraint. So the classic example comes in rabbinic literature in a text called the Sifrei. And in the Sifrei, talking about this war that the Jewish people are commanded to launch against the people of Midian, the verse tells us in chapter 31 that the Jewish people did battle against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses. And that kind of leads the rabbis into the question of, well, wait a minute. If they did battle 
as the Lord commanded Moses, there must be some particular form of battle that they had to engage in that was different from the form of battle that other people had to engage in. And the rabbis get into a whole debate about what that might have been. And the view of Rabbi, uh, of Rabbi Nathan, Rabbi Nassan, is that what Jewish war means is that whereas another army might besiege people around all four sides, a Jewish army can only besiege an enemy on three sides, and it has to leave a corridor for escape. Um, the question is why that's very, very important. Maimonides says this regulation that the Torah imposes is a humanitarian regulation. It's supposed to be a way in which Jewish people can show mercy to their foes uniquely. And Maimonides also says, and he seems to think that these two rationales are connected, he says it's also for the safety of the Jewish besieging army, because he says if you encircle the army in all four sides, they'll have no choice but to fight to the last person, and that will severely endanger the Jewish forces that are trying to win a battle. So it's dangerous to besiege people on all four sides. And so the question is, well, okay, which one of those is the overriding concern? Are those concerns linked? Are they two separate things? And Maimonides thinks both applies. This is a very significant debate. And now in practice, where rabbinic law lands on this dichotomy between kind of Jewish warfare being uniquely severe on one hand and uniquely restrained on the other, is that on the side of severity, the rabbis are very clear. The Amalekites, though Israel's war against them is total. No one can survive that. What rabbinic literature has done, in essence, in effect, is reduce that to theory. The rabbis are clear that there's there are no Amalekites anymore. So there's no such thing as like total war. There's just no such thing anymore as Jewish total war. And we're not allowed to say things by proxy or metaphor. Like even the Nazis are the modern day Amalekites. That right. is verboten. Right. Part of that conversation is like, okay, well, the Amalekites may be gone in practice, and therefore we can't wage Amalekite-style war in practice. It doesn't mean, therefore, that the evil of, of Amalek has been banished from the world. That's an important point. Rabbi Soloveitchik makes that point in his defense of Zionism. He says that there's, there's a sense in which the enemies of the Jewish people in the 20th century embody the evil of Amalek. But what about kind of the restrained side of Jewish warfare? This actually came to a practical head in, of all times, June of 1982, or shortly thereafter, the first Lebanon war and the Jewish operation that's launched in Lebanon in 1982 is, is Shlom HaGalil. There's a certain point in which Israeli forces besiege Beirut, and they do so to entirely destroy parts of the Syrian army and the PLO. And as a consequence of that, lots of people are killed. You know, like 600-something people are killed. Thousands are injured. But the PLO surrendered and then ends up having to negotiate safe passage to Tripoli. What happens in the wake of this war in the Israeli kind of popular discourse is a lot of debate about Israeli war tactics and strategic goals and aims and strategic concepts and so on and so forth. But what happens in the Israeli public intellectual sphere is in some ways so much more fascinating because there's this major debate that erupts in religious publications between Rabbi Shlomo Goren, who's the chief rabbi at the time, and Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, who's another one of the major Jewish halachic thinkers at the time. And they argue over whether or not it is lawful for a Jewish army to have besieged Beirut completely. Rabbi Goren, who's no fluff, argued strenuously that Jewish law did not permit a, a complete and total siege of Beirut. 
Rabbi Shell Yisraeli, on the other hand, argued that he was wrong and that, in fact, Jewish law perhaps even required a full siege of Beirut. It was that important that the PLO be defeated. Now, their arguments touch on a variety of texts and concepts that derive from Jewish law. But to me, and there's there's so many complexities and nuances, like you don't want to reduce it just to their concluding positions. But to me, what's so fascinating is that at a time of real darkness in the Middle East and in the wake of a period of real crisis for Israeli society, you have Jewish thinkers truly in good faith and genuinely without kind of moral recrimination towards each other, wrestling with the question of, okay, what does God demand of us in this moment? To me, this kind of bespeaks like the moral seriousness of the Jewish people. And and the truth is, I doubt whether in the age of Twitter and social media, a real robust conversation like this amongst serious Jewish thinkers is even like possible. Right. Good luck to us. Let me ask you this. A lot of us are seeing horrendous images. A lot of us are contemplating the meaning of the worst single day massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And you hear in all kinds of circles calls, for example, to flatten Gaza. People in their rage are saying, look, this is an all out war for our survival by any means necessary. Walk us through trying to think our way into this question or out of this question. Yeah. I want to say two things. One, there is an ethic in Jewish literature, and it begins in the Bible. I mean, the book of Judges is not a joke. There is an ethic of punishment in the Bible. Like for people who are truly, truly brutal, the Bible does not shrink from insisting that in practice they be punished really severely. One of the brutal rulers of the land of Canaan, a leader by the name of Adoni Bezek, when he's caught, the Israelite soldiers, cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and they leave him as an example for anybody who would try to inflict that kind of brutality on on the Israelites ever again. That's a story in the book of Judges. It's not condemned. So on the one side, you have that. On the other side, what you have in Jewish literature is a real pushback against essential national characters. Not always. The Amalekites are so thoroughly evil that the Bible insists they just be wiped from the face of the earth. But you also have other people who in the Bible are identified as enemies whose image within the Bible shifts. And the classic example that I want to give is the people of Edom, the descendants of Esau, as in Jacob and Esau, the brothers from Genesis who are portrayed often as eternally at war. So there's a famous image in rabbinic literature that associates the Roman world as Edom. Like the Edomites, that's like a cipher for the Romans which seems to be a weird thing because the Edomites are an actual people descended from Esau who live in the Levant. They're like a Middle Eastern people. Why are the rabbis taking the name from an existing people and applying it to Romans from Europe? Why is that name even available to be usurped? And the answer is because by that time, the actual Edomites had essentially disappeared. What happened to them? Well, if you look in the book of Genesis and you read about Esau himself, he's portrayed almost as like kind of like a brutish, figure. But if you just read the text, he's kind of like a victim of Jacob. Jacob tricks him. He outwits him at every move. And Esau tries to kill Jacob. But, you know, you can kind of understand his rage. Then you get to the book of Deuteronomy. Jacob is long dead. And now the Edomites are treated as 
a party that was hostile to the Jewish people, but that should be nevertheless treated in a brotherly fashion. So the book of Deuteronomy says, if somebody from the people of Edom tries to marry into the Jewish people, after three generations, they can totally become part of the Israelites. Why? As the verse says, because he's your brother. So the Edomites are kind of like a little bit estranged, but they're our brothers nevertheless. Then you fast forward to books like Obadiah, to books like Lamentations, books like Jeremiah, and all of a sudden, the Edomites, in that case, had participated with the Babylonians in destroying the first temple. So this is like five to 700 years later. The Edomites participate in destroying the first temple, and that's when you start to get in Jewish literature words like Esav Sone Yaakov, that the Edomites just will forever hate the people of Jacob, and they're portrayed as like real enemies whose comeuppance is one day going to come, who are going to be punished, who are going to be... And so you, you have this real evolution from kind of victim to estranged to real enemy. And that's kind of where the Bible cuts off. But if you look a little bit further after the Bible and you look to the period of the Roman period, when the Jewish people revolt against Rome and the temples destroyed a second time, Josephus actually tells us something really interesting about the Edomites. By that point, the Edomites had been ruled by a Jewish polity for about like a century, a little bit more, probably two centuries. And they had really integrated with the Jewish people. And Josephus portrays this, who's like, you know, a Jewish historian from the first century CE, who's an eyewitness account to the Roman destruction of the second temple. He portrays this really fascinating scene where the Romans approach, are approaching Jerusalem with the intent to destroy it, to sack it. And the Jewish rebels within the city are kind of dithering. And all of a sudden, a troop of Edomites shows up in front of Jerusalem. And what they say to the Jewish people inside is, guys, get your act together. You need to stand strong because when you stand strong against the Romans, we will be with you. We're your brothers. And if the Romans want to get to you, they're going to have to go through us first. And they plant themselves in front of the walls of Jerusalem and defend the Jewish people. Within Jewish history, you have, on the one hand, a willingness to just say a people is rotten to the core and they must be destroyed. But on the other hand, you have this willingness to be flexible with people's behavior. Like, you wipe out the Amalekites, but you don't wipe out the Edomites because though they are horrible and though they treated the Israelites with such savagery that the prophets condemn them to punishment, eventually, with the passage, to be fair, of hundreds of years, things shift. It also teaches us to think on a totally different timeline, right? 100%. So I think I kind of have asked myself as I've thought about this a lot this past week, like, okay, like, what do you do with that? Like, the Israelite relationship with the Edomites changes. Okay, like, what now? So, like, we should be friends with Hamas. We should be friends with the people. Like, let's assume for just a moment, and there's a lot of public survey data to back this up, that, like, Hamas has, like, some plurality of support in Gaza. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that that's the case, right? So what are we supposed to do? Make friends with people who, like, desperately are seeking our death through any means necessary or willing to kill, to rape, to pillage, to behead children, to burn people who were supposed to be their friends because the Edomites changed? So I think the answer to that, unless you're completely naive and insane, the answer to that is no. Like, right now, we are in the Obadiah phase. We are in the Lamentations phase. We're in the Jeremiah phase. Like, we need to wage a war that we can win. Obviously, there are rules, there are laws in Jewish war, and we have to abide by those at all time. Those are non-negotiable. But we should not fool ourselves into thinking that we are not contending with people who seek our destruction. But the virtue of Jewish ethics, morals, and theology is that we are, I think, uniquely amongst societies and civilizations able to think on long timescales. Every Passover, 
we invite our ancestors from a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, 3000 years ago to our table and we talk about them and we remember them. We know that, that were they with us today alive, they would hug us and they would love us. And when we think about our descendants that are coming a thousand years down the line, we think of them with real love because we know that there's going to be something that binds us across all these generations. So we can think on long time scales. And I think that's why it's important for us at the very same time, like my mother always says, you can hold two thoughts in your head at the exact same time, even if they contradict each other. We both need to know that we are fighting a war against an enemy that right now wishes our destruction and we must be implacable and we must abide by God's commands and wills for us. We should not fool ourselves into thinking we're not fighting a war. But at the same time, we should think, okay, what's our plan for 500 years from now? Can we look forward to a time when one day the Edomites will stand in front of the walls of Jerusalem and, and defend us? And if we can remember, even as we're fighting to win and showing no mercy to the Adoni Bezics of the world, can we still remember what's going to happen 500 years from now and act and plan and think accordingly. It's an almost impossible task, but it's one we've had to pull off for 3,000 years. So if anyone's going to do it, it's us. And does Jewish literature speak to the idea of collateral damage or the idea that it's not always so simple to simply target the completely evil Hamas is living in dense civilian areas? The concept of collateral damage is there's a whole rabbinic halachic literature on it. And some of the great Israeli religious thinkers of the last several decades have developed it at great length. There's certainly a sense that collateral damage is permissible in war. There are lots of different nuances to those discussions. But yes, the idea that striking military objectives will cost the lives of people, that in a one-on-one -on -one situation, killing such a person would be murder in war, those things are certainly permissible. But I, I worry about this kind of from both sides. Like there's a tendency that we have to get drawn into conversations about collateral damage on terms that are not indigenous to our society and culture. And I, I think it happens on both sides, right? Like well-meaning friends of Israel will say things like, in the wake of X, Y, and Z, like you can have no mercy to flatten Gaza. And like in response to that, we would say things like, no, Jewish law, Jewish law actually has rules and regulations about such a thing. And we can't just give in to your bloodlust. But at the same time, and I think in this particular conflict, much more so I worry about the kind of people who tell Israel, restraint is required, proportionality is required, this or that is required. Like, yes, those are all relevant for conversations about the law of war and the Geneva Conventions and all those sorts of things. But those, the Geneva Conventions is not indigenous to Jewish culture and society. And if we're going to have arguments about what it means to be a moral Jewish army, we shouldn't begin, like the conversation should not begin with just in Bellow or like with kind of Catholic, you know, theoretical frameworks or with international law theoretical frameworks. Like if we're going to articulate what it means to be a moral Jewish army, we should do so on Jewish terms. Like we have a long, deep and extraordinary tradition of thinking about how to wage war. Sometimes that makes us more severe. Sometimes it makes us less severe, but it's our tradition and we should be forthright in talking about it. Like we shouldn't accept uh, not that we shouldn't accept, but we shouldn't let the conversation begin with kind of outsider accounts of how morality and war is to be conducted. And furthermore, I should say, there's like a weird thing that, <laughs> like Ross Douthat has this wonderful line where he's like, if you don't like the religious right, you're really going to hate what comes after the religious right. And I think what's, what's happened in the sort of post-Christian world that we often live in, at least among the commentariat, 
is you realize, okay, Western civilization has been constructed entirely, its entire moral framework has been constructed on the yearning for a Jewish victim to suffer and die on behalf of our sins, to redeem us. And what the post-Christian Western world has done is not abandoned that instinct. It's just replaced the Jewish victim with the state of Israel. The Jewish people are therefore required to be this like morally pure sacrificial victim that turns the other cheek and lives up to all of the moral ideals that the West itself would never live up to. I mean, just look at the destruction of Mosul and the war and the war against ISIS, not to mention the war on terror. Like Israel and the Jewish people are asked to be this like morally pure victim that the West can place all of its moral aspirations onto. And it's it's gross. And I think what we do in insisting on using our language, our concepts, and our culture to describe what morality and, and warfare looks like, we're pushing back against that, that instinct that the West has to make a morality play out of our actual real lives. Let's assume Hertzi Halevi, the Israeli chief of staff, calls you and says, Lamb, I got 30 seconds here, man. We're about to go into battle. I need the TLDR version of how are we to think of this question of collateral damage whisper something in my ear as we're about to uh, plan these attacks. This is going to sound like a dodge of the question, but I think there's an important moral point to make here. I would say there are so many Jewish leaders who have devoted their entire lives, not just to studying the Jewish laws of war, but to studying the Jewish laws of everything, and therefore have a moral, ethical, and theological context in which to make those kinds of decisions in a way that is respectful of and pays fealty to our long, extraordinary cultural and moral tradition. And if those people, chief of staff, Ramat Khal, are not in your speed dial, <laughs> you've messed up. Like you've messed we have up. A problem. Right. Yeah. Is that something that's at the forefront of these operations, right? Like where does this stand in the whole history of Jewish thinking on the subject? So Israeli culture has had this sometimes weird, sometimes beautiful relationship with traditional Jewish law and theology. And in a lot of respects, very traditional sources and jurisprudence has been assimilated into Israeli policymaking and the judicial system through the Mishpat Ivri movement, the kind of legal movement that takes Jewish sources seriously or attempts to take them seriously in a practical policy-driven civic as opposed to religious way, kind of how I'm describing and that's been true across a variety of topics and war is the ethics of war is just one of them but yes like there you'll definitely have i mean go to yeshiva university and take whole courses on this right but a lot of the kind of classical jewish and and particularly israeli thinking about the laws and ethics of how to wage warfare has been shaped by great jewish sources it's not as if you know people are writing letters to you know rabbi asher weiss and getting, you know, halachic responsa in return. Although things like that do sometimes happen, both at like the highest levels, but also at like the soldier to soldier. Like you'll have soldiers who will write questions to great rabbis and get their responses. But yeah, I mean, like Israel takes its tradition and legacy really seriously. It's obviously, as we all know, and I think as is appropriate, you know, it's not like a theocracy and it shouldn't be a theocracy. But I also think that the halachic tradition should be no less important culturally and, and in a civic sense to Israelis than like Voltaire and Rousseau are to the French. 
There's another aspect to this particular conflict that also sadly resonates with a whole sub-genre or subcategory of, of, of Jewish religious law, which is the question of Pidyon Shvuim, of redeeming those who were captured. We are now looking at, by some accounts, almost 200, uh, maybe even more Israelis uh, who've been captured by Gaza. What, is, what does Halacha tell us about what we may and may not do to uh, bring them home speedily and safely? It's pretty simple. You do anything to bring them home. There are kind of two ways to think about the redemption of captives. Both of the elements are present in Maimonides and in the Shulchan Aruch, the great code of Jewish law by Rabbi Joseph Caro. Maimonides describes the requirement to redeem captives as a function of charity. Maimonides says captives are like the most destitute beggars. And in fact, redeeming captives takes precedence over feeding and clothing the hungry. The way to think about redeeming captives is like you're walking down the street and you're seeing a mother with a starving child. Like what would she do to save her child? Like what would she do? And what would you as a passerby, what would have to be wrong with your soul if you saw something like that to not help? That's how we should think about Jewish captives. They are that mother struggling to feed their child and you, we are the passerby who have the ability to help What would we not do for such a person? That's how Maimonides wants us to think about captives. Like, think about, think about what wouldn't we do for them? Complementary to that, the Shulchan Aruch says about captives, which means any moment that you let a captive, a Jewish captive, remain a captive, it's like you're killing them. It's like you're spilling their blood. And to me, Every moment that you leave a Jewish captive in enemy hands, especially, I almost can't even talk about it, like especially considering what we know were done to those who didn't even end up in captivity, we can only imagine what's being done to the captives in Gaza. Any moment that we delay from saving them, it's like we're killing them all over again. It seems to me that those two perspectives, redeeming captives as a function of charity and redeeming captives as a function of preventing murder, one is, is how I kind of think of it as a diaspora Jew, and the other one is how I think of it as a Jew, like on the front lines in Israel. Like from a diaspora perspective, like, okay, we can't be on the front lines. We wish we could be, but we can't. So what we can do is open up every other resource we have to try and save our captives. Like what wouldn't we do for our captives? Money, supplies, prayer, study Torah, anything we could possibly do, we do. And from an Israeli strategic perspective, what wouldn't we do to prevent the murder of our of our siblings, the continuous murder and remurder of our siblings? So when you look at the whole of Jewish, the Jewish kind of halachic theological approach to the redemption of captives, and you see how how urgently Jewish law from the Talmud, from the Mishnah, all the way down to modern times takes that issue, that's kind of where we begin. So that's why we take it so seriously. Yet there is, there is a tension in Israel between those who want to prosecute the war in Gaza as if there were no hostages and those who feel otherwise, including family members of hostages, of course. So there actually is a really important text in Maimonides' code where he says, and it's based on the Mishnah, which says the same thing, Maimonides just codifies it, which is that the community is not permitted to allow itself to be overly extorted when it comes to redeeming captives. And the reason given for that is because of tikkun olam. Now, tikkun olam, not in kind of like the weird, emptied of all content, slogany sense that we know it nowadays, but in the rabbinic sense of 
Like we need to live in a world that's founded on some principles of justice. And if the Jewish community allows itself to be extorted again and again and again, then we're just encouraging people to capture more Jews. Maimonides says that, that why can't we allow ourselves to trade 5,000 prisoners for one prisoner or kind of pay the amount of 5,000 people for one? The Rambam says, the Maimonides says, We don't want to incentivize our enemies to consider it profitable to take us. And so the question is how that shakes out from a specific strategic and tactical perspective in this conflict. I don't know. But for someone to say the Jewish people cannot allow themselves to be extorted in the way that we have that we have been and are currently being extorted, that's part of it as well. So it's it's at times like this, I just I think about it all the time when I'm, you know, praying three times a day. There's a prayer in the Amidah prayer, which begins, Hashiva Shoftenu Kevarishona, restore the judges and thinkers and leaders of the Jewish people as we had once upon a time. What wouldn't we do now for a David, for a Moses, for an Ezra, for a Nehemiah? What wouldn't we do? I mean, even as as recently as not that long, what wouldn't we do for a Begin? What wouldn't we do for, in the moral sphere, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs? We just pray that God guides us in this moment into making the decisions that will keep Jewish people safe and bring Jewish people home. And the best we can do is our best. How do we make sense of the uneasiness we feel right now, right? Like the horror of what happened, the depressing reality of what is to come, knowing that it's all happening within this whirlwind of social media, right? There's so many layers to what's happening, right? There's the text and then the subtext and the supertext, all this stuff. And I'm just wondering if you have any Jewish wisdom for those of us who are just disheartened by the savagery we've seen and know that a long war might be to come. What do we do with all these feelings? How do we root them in something and and make them sort of understood? I want to start by validating the unease. And I'll you know, get very personal. Um, my entire family has moved to Israel. All my siblings, my parents, cousins, we're one of the very, very few people and the only people in my immediate family who are still in America. Just yesterday, when my sister got married, we couldn't be there. When the book of Ezra, one of the biblical books, which describes the return to Zion after the Babylonian exile, and that narrates the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, what we now would call the second temple. When the book opens and it describes the very few Jews who actually were willing in those initial stages to make the return to Zion, when it describes them leaving and all the Jews who were left behind who are kind of wishing them well and sending them off, the particular Hebrew terms that the Bible uses to describe both the returnees to Zion and the people who stayed behind are direct echoes of the narrative and exodus of the Jewish people being rescued from Egypt. And the strong implication is that the Jews who leave are like the Israelites who fled Egypt and the Jews who stayed behind are the Egyptians. And like in everything, that's not the final word in the Bible. So at the exact same time that Ezra exists, you also have the book of Esther, which takes place after the second temple has been rebuilt. There's a robust Jewish community in exile and there's heroism and we celebrate a whole holiday Purim based on the book of Esther. But the book of Ezra is there. The Jews who returned are the Israelites who've left there on the front lines. We all chose to stay in Egypt. And in essence, we've assimilated into Egypt, no matter our good intentions. 
I've never felt that more than this week. I've never felt it more than the last week and a half. I feel, I feel in some ways like I, like I've abandoned my family. I feel, I feel, I feel impotent in, in the efforts that are required to defend them. I feel like I'm not doing my part. I, you know, I told you guys before the podcast started that my sister couldn't get married in a hall. She got married in a front yard, you know, so she had to walk down the aisle through a street and all of her neighbors, religious, secular, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi didn't matter. They all turned out to sing and to dance. And in that moment, I thought of the words of Jeremiah in the 33rd chapter that one day in the streets of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, they'll once again be heard the voice of mirth and celebration, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it was so beautiful to watch and incredible to behold. But at the same time, I thought to myself, I can't believe that people who've never met my sister in her life are there for her and I'm not. And the reason they're there is because they chose to be with their people and they chose to live there. And I chose to stay behind and whatever justifications I can come up for that. And believe me, I have them. Nothing can change the fact that, that we have all chosen not to be in the front lines and it makes, and to a certain extent, it makes all of our opinions like nonsense, like just total nonsense. So I want to validate the sense of unease because I feel it myself. I feel both rage and horror on behalf of my people and also feel like I've abdicated my responsibility to them. I can't think of any worse feeling than that. It's just, it's just, it's just terrible. So on the one hand, I want to validate the unease. On the other side, there's kind of a magical thing that happens in Jewish theology, this thing that we've been doing since the Bible, which is we'll take a character from one story and use that character to like define and describe a million billion other stories that in theory have nothing to do with it. Everybody has heard of Pharaoh, right, from the Exodus. How many times throughout Jewish history, and forget Jewish history, how many times throughout Western history, like when the American Revolutionary War is fought, the American founders are all referring to George III as Pharaoh, right? How many times throughout Jewish history have we said, this person is Pharaoh, that person is Pharaoh, this person is Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the, the temple, this is, you know, this person is Titus, they are the Amalekites, this person is Haman. When we do that, what we're doing is we're bringing all Jewish people throughout history, no matter where they were, when they lived, the conditions under which they lived, and we're bringing them all together in one moment and one place and saying, your struggle is our struggle. Your aspirations are our aspirations. Your fears are our fears and your hopes and dreams are our hopes and dreams and vice versa. So when we say that somebody that we are facing Pharaoh or we're facing the Amalekites right now, that, that Hamas, even if they're not legally Jewish legally, the Amalekites, they are in a very real sense, the embodiment of all of that evil. We're not saying we're facing the Amalekites. What we're saying is we're facing the Amalekites too. And in doing that, we are saying that we're all together, not just Jews in the diaspora and Jews in Israel. Every single Jew who ever lived, we're all standing shoulder to shoulder right now. They could have lived a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now. We're all standing together. And there's something about that that just brings me immense comfort at a time like this, because I know that no matter what unfolds on social media in the next week, no matter what happens in Gaza over the next two years, here's one thing I do know for sure. What I know for sure is that 
a thousand years from now, our descendants, our great, great, great grandchildren will invite us to their Passover table and we'll all celebrate together. And there's nothing that Hamas can do that any of our enemies can do to take that away from us. There's nothing they can do to stop it. So as far as I'm concerned, this battle is already won. It's up to the people in Israel on the front lines and anything we can do to support them to win. But there is something about that that brings me comfort. Rabbi Ari Lam, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me, guys. Our next Jewish guest is actress Lisa Edelstein. She's joining us today to talk about her new PBS series, Little Bird. She plays a Holocaust survivor who adopts a young girl during the 60s scoop in Canada when indigenous children were taken from their homes and put up for adoption. She tells us about the show and also gets real with us about her experience as a Jewish actress in Hollywood who often would not get roles because she was deemed too Jewish. And you should know that it's a non-struck project that we can discuss freely. Hallelujah. PBS forever. (laughs) Lisa Edelstein, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. You have an amazing new project called Little Bird. It's on PBS, and I would love for you to just get started by telling us about it. Okay. Little Bird is about something called the 60s scoop, which a lot of people in America do not know about. In the 60s, the Canadian government stole about 50,000 indigenous children off the reservations, took them from their families, and funneled them through the adoption system to Canadian families as an effort to improve their lives, question mark. They were sort of sold in a Sears catalog type style catalog. They were given numbers instead of names. There was no vetting. I met one man, for example, who was adopted out at around five or six years old to a family in Pittsburgh, and he lived in a barn because he was there to raise the animals. And even though there were other kids in the family, he was never allowed in the house. So by the time he was... 18, he was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and his indigenous mother was able to find him. Once the children turned 18, they were given the information about where they had taken their children. This mother had been trying to recollect all of her children from everywhere, and she found him, and she got him to come back to Canada. He got sober. He learned his language. He learned his culture, and the day I met him, he'd become chief of the tribe. So that was pretty incredible. So it's really about a very traumatizing time in Canadian history. And I'm sure in American history, too, we just don't really talk about those things just yet. And I got to play a woman who's a Holocaust survivor who adopts one of these children in the 60s because Jewish Family Services was told, this is a good deed. You're saving these children. Everyone was advised to change their names, to not talk about their history. Like, these were just a very limited and terrible ideas about how to deal with these stolen children. And the adoptive parents did not know the history of where their kids had come from. My daughter, in the time of the show, it's now in the 80s. She's in her 20s. She's about to get married to a nice Jewish boy. She's Her name is now Esther. And she's raised Jewish, but there's a part of her that can't move forward into her life until she really understands what happened to her. And so the story follows her journey into finding her indigenous family. And eventually she confronts my character to ask me why I participated in such a horrible crime. And there's just so much beauty about when when the two worlds come together because she goes back to the reservation and she needs me. She needs her mom because something terrible has happened. 
And there's just a really beautiful blending of culture and a beautiful conversation about trauma and just sort of an opening that is, I think, really necessary, especially at this moment in time for people to listen to each other and hear each other. I was very, very grateful to do this show. It was was a very powerful experience for me. Was that your first kind of encounter with, I agree, a shamefully little-known piece of North American history? Yeah, I I had worked in Canada for a couple of years. So I had seen some of the stories about what happened to the indigenous peoples there. There was a lot of fight over land rights, and there was also a lot of discussion about missing women. There's an enormous amount of missing indigenous women, and the cases, you know, never get solved. And they had just started discovering the mass graves of indigenous children that had been So before the 60s scoop, the children were taken by the church and put into residential homes. So they had been stealing these children for generations. And the residential homes were a disaster. There was a lot of abuse. Their whole cultures were erased. And then they were just sort of put back on the reservations. And it decimated generation after generation of these tribes, tribal communities. And the 60s scoop was like a really clumsy way of trying to fix it. And it was a terrible idea. So we're still all recovering from these horrible mistakes. So, yeah, I learned a lot on this job. There were so, not things that I knew. You know, usually usually we torment our friend Joshua Molina by asking incessantly about the actorial process. But it strikes me that in this case, it is a particularly difficult challenge because here's the character. It's a very good person with mm-hmm. very good values and a deep trauma of her own doing something that is monstrous mm-hmm. and yet filtered through a specific lens and a specific emotional valence, right. et cetera. Like, oh, I'm doing a good thing here. There's a, But there's racism even in the idea. Mm-hmm. Like the, the problem exists because people were so willing. It was so easy to tell people that these were abandoned children. There was not a question because of how they viewed right that particular group their savage of parents cannot raise right them. so so there is there is a core of racism in the behavior even though the intention is good and so there is a confrontation you have to make even though you think you're doing a mitzvah you think everything that you're doing is is for the right so how do you become this person what was so beautiful about being offered this job is that she's a holocaust survivor that you know I'm remembering my family I'm a, I I love that opportunity to kind of bring our cultural nuances into the story, but she's still a human being. Like she's got all this trauma and all this understanding, but she's, everyone has their limitations and their blind spots. So even though she is confronted with this ugly truth, that is not where we land. That's not the end of the story. It's just like, and you did, like the story then goes on into this cultural exchange that's gorgeous. So I wasn't afraid of it. I don't think she's the bad guy, but I, do you think she had to start from a really uncomfortable place and, and move forward from there? Especially somebody dealing with the Holocaust, because what better experience could teach you that people have so easily thought that Jews of that time were not human enough to, to live? Like, she had literally seen the wrong side of that. And I think it was very shocking for her to recognize that she was also— complicit in a similar activity, not anywhere near what the Holocaust was, but similar thinking. What a beautiful place to start, because I think when you're storytelling, if you don't show that it's safe and okay to have that recognition and move forward to correct, then 
that's what storytelling's for. That's what it's here to do. It's like, that's what's always been here to do. Kind of teach your children, teach your community how to move forward from wherever you're stuck. I find it also intriguing that Jennifer Podemsky, one of the two co-creators, is herself of First Nations and Jewish heritage. She is Holocaust survivor family on one side, residential school survivor on the other side. Unreal. She's an amazing person. And and so when I first read the scripts, they only sent me the first two. The very first episode was challenging as a Jewish person because having not seen the rest of it, I didn't know if it was bad for Jews. And I was very worried about that. And so then I asked to speak to Jennifer. And then when I learned where she was coming from, I was like, okay, wait, I think I'm safe. And then I read the rest of the scripts and just wept and wept, you know, because there's some bigotry presented in the first episode and it comes from the Jewish community that Golda and Esther live in. And so as Jews, I think it's like we always feel like we're represented by every Jewish representation because it's so easy to kick us. So it always is terrifying when there's somebody who's unkind or bigoted that's a Jewish character. And there is someone in the in that episode that's very ugly, the things that she's saying. So, but luckily that is not what the story is about and that is not where it goes, but it really just talks about how it doesn't matter what culture you come from, there is a version of bigotry (laughs) because we are human beings everywhere. uh, And we all have to learn how to overcome that stuff. It's funny. I had a similar uh, experience as a viewer watching the first episode unfold. As a viewer, I'm always like, is good for the Jews, bad for the Jews? (laughs) Yeah, me too. uh, We can't help it. And the mother-in-law, the the, the woman who plays the mother of the boy that your daughter is engaged to, is caught making racist comments about her daughter-in-law-to-be. And I was buoyed by the fact that we learned that it's a large and all-encompassing and large-breath view of Right. experience. But as a Jew, right, as a Jew watching that, you're like, you, even though no other, there's, there's 150 Jews in that episode and only one of them is saying that. But it's, then it's just about that one. That's all you hear. That's all you hear. You're just like, that's bad Jew. Everybody hates the Jews. Yeah. But of course, it's also not fair to pretend that we don't have these things in our own communities too, or these. Yeah. It's just, it's just always scary to look at because everybody's just looking for the bad shit and Jews anyway. So it's, it's, Stressful, And in fact, when it very first showed at this uh, festival in France, they only showed the first two episodes. And one woman got up and said, you know, we suffered too. And it was like, all they wanted to do is just like sit her down and show her the rest. Right. Uh, because at those festivals, you only get to show a limited amount of the, the series. So I was really worried about that. But we overall, we have not had that reaction when people have watched the series. And I'm, I'm grateful. I think this is your most Jewish role yet. Is that true? Yeah. What is it like for you to play such a Jewish role? Not just a character whose last name is Jewish, right? Or a first name is Jewish, which we've seen, but right. a, char- a, a character whose foundational identity is Jewish. The whole package. The yeah, whole thing. Yeah. Right, because yeah. my name is Edelstein. I, no matter who I play, they become Jewish <laughs> within a few weeks. Like, even if their name is Irish, <laughs> they are then a Jew. And I don't know why they do that, but apparently I'm very Jewish. So... This was a little more intimidating because, mostly because of of the accent. I mean, this woman grew up in Poland as a Yiddish speaker. Her whole family was murdered when she was 13, was shipped off to French Canada. So educated in French Canada. So that's mean in French and English. So what is that accent? And you know what I mean? I was like, I am... And I grew up from New York Jews, which is a very different accent. They're also from Poland, but New York is a different sound. 
So it was, that was a little intimidating, but- I was going to ask you, I thought you did very good dialect work. Did you, were you given time to prepare and dialect help and all that? I had a brief dialect help, but nobody on set. So it was very nerve wracking, that part of it. But thank you. I'm really glad you feel that way. Um, Absolutely. You know, it's like even as New York Jews just saying the mourner's cottage, you know, it's different inflections that mm. we, we use T's where the sounds are S's. Like it's all. And the Jews listening would know. They would know. Oh, that's and all I'm, they would be listening for. Right. Right. I, 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 mean, I didn't like the way you pronounced the yeah, I know. It's Yiskadal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I had to redo it because I did the Yitkadal. I was like, no, no. These things are important. I just don't want, I don't want that one thing to throw the Jew out of the story. Now, the show is coming out, sadly, in, in an era in which Jewish stories of a very different kind are told. Yeah. Is that something which obviously is not anything any of us could have predicted? Is that something you're mindful of thinking about? Well, for one thing, the week that I had to do press for this premiere is is the week of the attack. And so if it were any other kind of show, I don't know that I could have gone through with my contractual obligations to actually go out and be on shows and smile. Um, but because this is, it's so important to be an ally to this community that has really suffered. And as a Jewish person, reflecting our story with their story and and just learning how to recognize each other. I, I, it was, I did not want to disappoint those creators, those show creators and everybody that that is so important to in that community. So yeah, the, the tone of the show itself helps me be able to show up right now, but I've been crying for four days. I've been in intense conversation. You know, but it's, it's so beautiful the way you put it. I, I, I feel very strongly as as you do uh, about this, I I just took my family to Wounded Knee, mm. uh, and my my son uh, who's ten ended up writing Joe Biden a letter saying he thought it was a shame that there isn't even a plaque mm. at the site of this massacre. But the one thing that I'm thinking about, I, I wonder if you feel the same. You know, this attack comes in the first immediate responses. You know, mad grief and rage and anger and and fear. But at least for me, and we're nowadays six, I don't know, six of the war. Um, it also kind of gelled into a deep sense that this is an attack that occurs in a part of a much larger human construct. And so a very good thing to do right now, even or especially as the war is going on, is exactly to stop and think about, you know, Native Americans and what was done to them, um, Armenians and what is being done to them right now, Nigerians and what is being done to them right now. It's, it's this kind of awakening of humanity, which I think the show does very well. Thank you. I wish I could press pause on the world right now. Because there's a tidal wave of fury that I feel like we can't stop and it will not solve this problem. If I could press pause in my imaginary world and just pluck out the humanity and get people to have a conversation, <laughs> because I think there's a difference between a terrorist organization and humanity. It's very, very sad. It's very, very sad. You know, we're sort of talking about art in times of crisis, art that comes out of horrible things that happen. And you yourself have a kind of amazing example. You started painting during the pandemic. I did. I've always been drawing, but the pandemic, the time that we had to spend with ourselves was pretty intense. And so I retreated back to an old practice of mine that was a private practice. It wasn't something that I really 
thought about sharing with the world. And, and then I got really, really into it and it just sort of got bigger and bigger and more out of control. <laughs> and so it ended up being painting. It started at drawing and markers and then it ends up being painting. And that's been really exciting for me because it's such a great outlet for the energy that I have to be able to hyper-focus on something like that. And the subject matter is my family. The subject matter is all from old family photos and I am Jewish, so the old family photos are of a lot of old Jews. That, that's the name, I believe, of the exhibit, right? A Lot of, <laughs> a old, lot Jews of old Jews by Lisa Edelstein. Yeah. Um, so the very first show I had last year in New York, it became a part of the conversation about the work because there were a lot of yarmulkes. Mm. And in a time when there's a lot of art and culture that is around identity, Jews are not really a part of that story. Mm-hmm. They are not represented in that way, it's not considered like, oh, we also need to get some Jewish artists in here. Like, nobody's thinking that. Yeah, they're thinking we need some Jewish gallery owners yeah, in here. They but, don't, yeah, they're not thinking about our culture. We're not on that list for some reason. We're not a minority that's recognized in that way. But it, we are, we are, we do exist. We are real. So it became like this strangely radical move to just paint Jews and allow for that culture to be the story that I was telling. I've always been fascinated by people who had like two things when it came to art because it strikes me that one thing You mean jealous is a oh <laughs> extreme because I don't even have one thing, you know? So people who have two things are just insane. Cause it strikes me that like if you have one thing, you focus all of your emotional, psycho spiritual energy and like, okay, acting. Like even the things that's just like I love Joshua's question, which of course would never have occurred to me. How'd you get the dialect so perfectly? And I don't know, I've always imagined that painting is a radically different, kind of much more abstract, much more, you know. I don't think so. No? I mean, well, first of all, acting, which I love, you only get to do when somebody gives you the opportunity to do it. So there's a lot of time between when you're acting. And even when you're on a show and you're on your regular, you're not, with some exceptions, if you're the lead, you're not working every day. And I like to work. I want to be working. The images that I select are very dramaturgical, very narrative. I'm looking for moments that tell a story that make you lean in and ask questions. So it doesn't matter who you're looking at, but there's something human that you recognize in them. And so it is very much like set design and character creation and costuming and like storytelling for me. And it's a really wonderful balance to acting because I can do it whenever and nobody can stop me. That's amazing. Is there a website online where people can go to look at images? Yeah, lisaedelsteinpaintings.com. Right on. It is true when I look at some of these photos, there's Beach Day, right, which is sort of two older couples at the beach. I'm like, I have that. I know that photo. Right. I know that. I know yeah. that den. And, and yes, it's like you could say it's American, but to me, there is something very profoundly Jewish. And it's really moving to see that depicted. Thank you. Um, we don't have images like that anymore. Yeah. We have, we are so savvy. We are always around a camera. We don't take the pictures for the memory. We mm-hmm. take the pictures for the memory we want to have mm-hmm. or the memory we wish we were experiencing. We filter it and Photoshop it and do all kinds of stuff. So I think older images are also really comforting because they aren't edited in the same way. And a lot of these pictures, maybe they're not even good pictures. Like sometimes I paint things where somebody's blinking because those are, you didn't throw anything away. You kept it because you paid for it. It was hard to develop it. It was, it was all an effort. You didn't know if there was ever going to be something about that picture that meant something to you (laughs) 50 years later. 
So you kept it in a box. So a lot of the pictures would not be the ones that were in the album. They would be the ones that were in the box. And some of them are from old home movies. I've been watching a lot of home movies that my dad made from back to the 1950s. And so I'm doing a lot of, I'll take a live photo as it plays, and then I'll find a frame that I find interesting. I like playing with damaged images that lack information and I'm curious as to how the brain sort of fills in the rest of the story, even though so little of it might be in the image itself. You know, we Joshua Molina talks a lot about... Do we only talk about Joshua Molina with his full name? Well, we started calling him Joshua. Um, <laughs> I and insist then, on it. It's good. Uh, yeah, so we're, yeah, Joshua, <laughs> Sir Joshua, Joshua Molina. Molina. Um, you know, but, but so Josh Molina is now like a big public Jew, right? Like he's right. talked a lot about yeah. how he got there. Yeah. He's super outspoken. And you see him on Twitter, you're like, yeah, you go. And he's talked a lot about like that journey and what it means to sort of be the the, the Jew. The loud Jew. And yeah. I guess I'm wondering for you, your, throughout your career, have you felt that similar thing? Have you been like, it is annoying that all these characters suddenly end up being Jewish? Does, or or have you, how, how does that play into your understanding of yourself as an actor? And also, you know, especially with this latest role. That's interesting. I mean, I grew up in a town just outside of New York that was dubbed, the year my parents moved there, the New York Times dubbed it the home of anti-Semitism in the United States of America. (laughs) It was about 20 minutes outside of New York. So I grew up with a lot of shame around being Jewish. So like when I became a club kid, when I was a teenager, I called myself Lisa E because I was like, I can't go forward in the world as Edelstein because no one will like me. You know what I mean? It's ugly. It's Mm. embarrassing, whatever it is. But when that experience sort of became too big to manage and I wrote my musical and I was moving forward as an adult, I was like, I realized I can't change my name because then Hitler wins. Like so much pressure on (laughs) Jews. Yes, of course. Um, (laughs) So if Hitler wins, because then I'm, I'm letting all those people tell me that I'm not good enough. So I didn't change my name. And then... When I first moved to L.A. in the 90s, early 91, being named Edelstein meant that you were not able to get the white roles, like you were the ethnic role. (laughs) Like that was about as ethnic as people could go. You could be Italian, you could be Jewish, but not in the lead. And a few times I actually lost jobs because one producer called me crying because the network executive told him that they already had a Jew on the show and one a two Jews was one Jew too many. And yeah. that was not the only time that that happened. It happened a number of times. And, and so there was definitely a limitation to having the name Edelstein that I had to just own at some point. And so I don't mind when my characters become Jewish. Why shouldn't they be? But, uh, but it is pretty funny that like, that I couldn't get away with it, even though I really didn't understand why. And I, I still don't know. I think if I, if my name was something unrecognizable ethnically, then, then maybe it would be different. Now there's a lot more people with Jewish names out yeah. there doing very well. And it's not something I think the world at large, if they're not Jewish, really understands mm-hmm. that we experience. You know, it, that's a whole other conversation about the whole Jew face conversation. I, what's interesting to me about the Jew face conversation, which I don't think gets really discussed, is that the Jew face we think of when we say Jew face is specific. It's Ashkenazi. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not Mizrahi. It's 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 not Sephardic. Yeah. So right. it's a it's very like problematic specific, and not even problematic and it relates in a full way. to how Nazis did caricatures of Jews. It's the big nose. It's they they did a um I wish I had this image. They did a uh, a weird little game they were trying to make out of 
the medical show I was on that will remain unnamed, uh, they, they were trying to make an app. And so they made avatars for everybody. And the other actresses, they showed me all the avatars for approval. I happened to see the whole sheet and then a big one of me. The other actresses had like beautiful, big doe eyes <laughs> and long lashes and just like, like almost like anime versions themselves. Really, really cute, pretty, big hair. Oh, I'm scared for what you My was. character uh, me too. had small eyes that were too close together with a big nose. <gasps> it wasn't, oh, it wasn't outrageous. It was subtle, but it was wildly different from the other women. I mean, and I was like, Look, I don't know who did this drawing, and it is a cartoon. And all I can say is that I know, for example, I have the same length eyelashes as the other women because they all come out of the same box. We all wear the same lashes. So let's just start with the lashes. Give me eyelashes. Um, and so they, somebody redrew it, and it was it was in keeping with the style of the rest. It was so weird. It was so weird. And I don't know why. Like, but. Somebody in there just had an idea of what I look like. <laughs> By the way, just to play Jewish, I, I don't know if this counts as Jewish geography, but I want to mention that Lisa and I did a Hillel Get Out the Vote video. We did. Together. Hi, Hanny. We made you this video to celebrate you becoming a voter. Mazel tov. We remembered how much you loved that video that we made you, you know, with your friends and your family for your bat mitzvah, which was so amazing. So, so your mom sent an email to your aunt and uncle and your cousins, your sister. You can see it, Marty. All right. Watch the video. Watch it. We worked hard. It's fun. I mean, how Jewish can you get? That was 100% Jewish. <laughs> That's amazing. I also feel like you guys have been on the same shows a lot. Like we, your IMDb's, there's crossover. I know we can't mention any of them. Yeah. Some other, a show not to be named we worked on many years ago. Yeah, exactly. So all Jews do know each other is what you're saying. <laughs> well, on 23 and Me, I have a lot of cousins that I'm related to on both sides. <laughs> and they're all Josh Molina. Yeah. Joshua Molina. <laughs> I did 23 and Me too. I was like, I can't believe I spent $100 to find out that I'm 98.9% Ashkenazi Jew. I, I'm I think, one, I, I, think I'm I kind of knew that oh, wow. already. <laughs> I'm one hundred. By so. the way, I think everyone who comes on the <laughs> nice. show, every Jewish guest, we should make we should find out how we're related to them. Um, <laughs> That's a really should, like, good run idea. run them through and then give them nice. a certificate. Mouth swab up, honey. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everybody would be so comfortable idea. with that, yeah. Um, Lisa Edelstein, it's been such a joy talking with you and learning a little bit more about Little Bird, which all of our listeners can watch on PBS. Yes. And- yes, beautiful work on the show we can refer to by name, Little Bird. Everybody should go check it out and watch it. Non-struck show. Thank you, everybody, for, for watching. All right, for Mazel Tov's, Liel, you got this? I got this. We have two things this week to celebrate. First of all, this Shabbos, some of us were very fortunate to partake in the simcha of the Raskei family, our colleague Daron and his wife, Rabbi Stephanie, for the bar mitzvah of their boys, Nachshon and Betzalel. The incredibly named Betzalel and Nachshon. Best of the best. Those boys rocked the party. Usually... Having three Dvar Torahs on a Shabbos is like two Dvar Torahs too many. But these boys, in addition to the rabbi, delivered unbelievable Dvar Torahs. They leaned so beautifully and we're so, so proud of them and for the parents for raising them. So Mazel Tov to the Raskei family. 
And also Mazel Tov to everyone out there. And I know it's a lot of you who listen to us right now who, instead of kind of wallowing in rage or despair or fear, got out there and did something this week. Maybe you just went to a rally or a vigil. Maybe you just called a friend and said, hey, how are you? Or organized a Shabbat dinner. Maybe you packed some packages and sent them over to Israel. Whatever it is that you did, you are the reason we're going to win this. All right. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We are produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you, especially now. Email us at unorthodoxatablemag.com or leave a voicemail on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. <laughs>